This episode has content surrounding sexual violence that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions before listening, and always take care of yourself. It was designed to protect the men committing crimes, not the girls reporting the crimes. Hey y'all, I'm Kat. And I'm Angie. Welcome back to Lux Supporting Survivors. All right, this is the second half of our legal system episodes. So if you haven't listened to the first half, go back and listen to that one. Um, And then we're going to go ahead and dive in a little bit more to the subjective side, I would say. Um, In the past episode, we were doing our best to just give you information. And this one is definitely going to be a little opinion heavy. Uh, For sure. With the disclaimer that, again, we are not legal experts. We are not legal professionals. Do not take anything we say as actual legal advice. Um, it wouldn't work out for you very but well. But just, put, you know, to, have, to know in the back of your mind and yeah. to have the knowledge we are imparting onto you from knowledge that we've gained from yet reputable sources and experiences, good to have. Yes, exactly. We, we do, I would say we know what we're talking about, having run this yeah. nonprofit, but we are not lawyers, so bear that in mind. All right, jumping right in. Um, I would say that the American legal system was not designed to support survivors. Um, I think Really? That, yeah, I know. Comes across as a crazy statement. We have said that so many times. Um, but I think if you haven't necessarily listened to the podcast before, that comes across as bold, perhaps. Um, I would say it's undoubtedly true. Um, it was not designed with survivors in mind in a lot of different capacities. Um, so firstly, the differences between how like other crimes are handled and how sexual violence cases are handled is crazy. Um, I think if you look at like somebody who like got robbed versus somebody who got raped, the differences in those cases are insane. Um, the best example that I'm sure I've said this before, um, but the best example that I have come across is the, putting the questions that are asked of a rape victim onto a robbery victim. So like say somebody got their watch stolen and you ask them the questions that you might ask a survivor, like, well, why were you wearing the watch out in public? Like it was right there on your wrist. You didn't want him to steal it. How can you expect him to not steal it if it's just right out there in plain sight? And why didn't you tell anyone right after it got stolen? Wouldn't you want people to know that the watch had been stolen? Like, you waited a week. I mean, did he really steal the watch? Like, you don't have the watch anymore. Where's the proof that he took it? What if you're just all making it up? You probably just want the money for the watch. Like, you hear how crazy that sounds? Like, obviously, someone just got robbed. But people get questions like that in, like, in a courtroom when they're testifying about having been sexually assaulted all the time. Um, Which is crazy. Yeah. I think that that's, like doesn't speak to any like specific like like sentencing aspect of the of the legal system but just in general the way that survivors are treated within the system specifically when you compare it against other like less like personal crimes I think is pretty insane I do too and also related but also completely unrelated you take the idea if you keep going with this idea of like robbery versus like i hate to say it rape who typically gets more time the robbers 
Oh my God. Yeah. No, a million percent. That's like something that we're going to talk about is like the short amount of time that rapists or like perpetrators, whatever you want to call them, get in the system. Like, like we just talked about in the last episode, the chance that they're going to be convicted is really low, but once they get convicted, the sentence that they're going to get is usually so low it's crazy like go back and listen to our brock turner case study episode he got three months for a conviction that said he sexually assaulted an unconscious woman and he spent three months in prison people spend longer in prison for marijuana yeah which like i'm not trying to get into a discourse on drug use here but you using marijuana hurts no one but yourself raping someone ruins someone's life so tell me how it makes more sense for you to get more time in prison for drugs than it does for rape like the short prison sentences are another huge issue right and it and it goes on to talk about like how we don't even have time to get into this but like how does i don't even i don't even want to say it how undervalued are we as survivors oh my god like are we really worth so So little little. so little to the point where the majority of the time it's not even worth like reprimanding them yeah i mean you you like you're saying the worst experience of someone's life is worth three months whereas it's going to be with them for the rest of their lives and if he had hit you instead of raping you he'd probably be in prison for five years because like aggravated assault you get time for like why do we undervalue survivors experiences so strongly and i think that leads into another issue that we're going to talk about which is victim blaming and saying that survivors are at fault i mean to take it back to the watch example you would never blame a robbery victim for like not wearing pepper spray or not calling for help or something like that and survivors are going to get blamed for that all the time they're like why didn't you avoid this why weren't you wearing something different why were you drinking all of these things that we've talked about because we've discussed victim blaming before but like me being drunk is not an invitation for you to attack right. me. Me literally being naked in the street is not an invi- invitation for you to attack me. But somehow when we get into a courtroom, that comes up all the time yeah. and is viewed as legitimate. Right. And that also goes into the whole like proving non-consent and the like having to literally prove like not only we talked about burden of proof, not only proving it happened to you, but proving it was not consensual. Like, well, you were drinking, so, like, you're more promiscuous when you drink. And you must have wanted right. it. and it's something, and again, it's something we'll talk about a little bit later in this episode, but the idea in a lot, and there's been some courts that have said, like, no more to this, but, like, bringing a survivor's sexual history into, into the courtroom, court. like, yeah. well, they've consented X amount of times before, so how are we going to say this wasn't consensual? Yeah, like, like what oh, the heck? well, she had sex with some other guy at some other party, so she must have been fine with having sex with this guy at this party. Right. No, only consent is consent. We say it every single episode. And like, I, like, I don't know, like, I feel like people use a survivor's actions against them in a way that that doesn't often happen in other situations. Like, think about like a carjacking. They're not going to say like, you wanted to be carjacked because you went along with it and you drove your car where they told you to and you did these things. Like, no one is saying, oh, we well, must have wanted to get carjacked. No, like, if someone is attacking you like it's we talked just like we just talked about it the fight flight or freeze like people have different reactions to things no one is saying that you wanted to be carjacked because you went along with it because you didn't know what to do like people would just get blamed constantly in a way that they don't for other things when it comes to survivor cases so we've jumped around 
a lot here and talked about a lot of things that I think are both societal but also legal because these are things that do happen in a courtroom. Like survivors will not get a guilty verdict for their perpetrator because defense lawyers will use these arguments against them. So it becomes a really big legal issue. And I think the only way that these things are going to be fixed in the legal system, and we are going to talk a lot about what should be changed, but the big way that this stuff needs to be fixed is changing it societally. We just had that episode on intersectionality talking about how all of this stuff is tied together. You can't fix one thing until you fix another. So yes, these are societal issues, but they're also legal issues and you can't fix it one way until you fix the other. Right. And so on top of like everything that happens in the courtroom and in terms of everything that we've just talked about, we also have gender bias and this can look a lot of different ways. There's the gender bias in that only women are assaulted, mm-hmm. but there's also the bias that all, that goes with typically women from what I've seen may usually wear more revealing clothing. Yeah. And that's considered promiscuous whereas when men wear when wow, when men wear revealing clothing, okay, hot. Yeah. Nice to see you. Exactly. It's normal. You can walk around without a shirt and you can mow your lawn without a shirt on. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think it's yeah. like it flips the other way too that like if a man is saying that a woman assaulted him, it's like, well, she didn't assault you. You you don't want to be having sex with a right. hot lady? Like hot like that's not assault. That. Come on, man. You should have wanted that. Like so it like harms women, but then it also harms men. Yeah. Like it's a cycle that is negative for everyone. And those things come into the courtroom too. Men get guilty verdicts against female perpetrators even less than women get guilty verdicts against male perpetrators. And like we said, that's only 5.7% of the time. So the number for men is even lower than that. Whew. Okay. To bring it back to something that we talk about all the time, Chanel Miller's case is an example of a ton of these things. Uh, The victim blaming because she was drinking, the proving the non-consent, even though she was literally unconscious, they said that she wanted it because she walked outside with him and that that in and of itself was consent. There was gender bias because what she was wearing was revealing. I mean, we talked about like the differences between how other cases are handled and like with the watch metaphor, like all of those questions were thrown at her. I mean, every single one of these things can be seen within the Chanel Miller case. So like we always say, go read her book, go look into that case. At the very least, you can listen to our Brock Turner case study episode. And I think that gives just like a very specific example of all of these things manifesting in in a real case. Exactly. And all of that to also say, we talk about Chanel Miller's case a lot. If it can, if this, if this is a case that is documented, she is not alone in this. Yes. This could happen. And so this has probably happened in more cases than we can even fathom, which is so sad. Um, so, yeah. So we talked about everything in the courtroom. That's so great. When it comes to, like, the actual basis of, okay, I've been assaulted, now what? We have a lot. There's a lot of different obstacles and a lot of different fears that go into actually reporting. So there's, I mean, period. The fears of reporting in knowing that there likely maybe is nothing going to happen. There's fears of reporting and what if this person finds out? And that goes into retaliation. Like, 
what, how many people don't report it because they know that if it gets back to the person who did it, their safety would be put into question. And it's like, and that also goes into lack of trust in the system. And I think there's just so many different things about like, sometimes reporting isn't the safest thing someone can do. Yeah. And that is really difficult when the system is also, I hate to say it, kind of corrupted. Well, and that's like, I mean, it, it comes back to that. Like, why would you want to report into a system that is probably not going to give you justice and anyway? And doesn't care about you. Yeah. Like, that is a huge flaw of the system. And then, like, when you don't have trust in the system, it makes reporting harder and, like, you're less likely to do it. And the whole retaliation thing, like... There should be systems in place to support survivors as they do this, but there aren't. Like, it's not just that the existing system that we have is bad. It's that we don't have enough of a system in place as is. And we've talked a lot about, like, the system wasn't built for survivors. And I want to, like, elaborate on what we mean when we say that. Like, this is what we're talking about. That, like, if you go to the police station to report something that happened to you and the person who is like taking all of your information is not trained in like how to deal with a situation that traumatic like isn't trauma trained that means that the system wasn't built for you frankly a lot of police officers have domestic violence charges against them that means if the person literally taking your information has a domestic violence charge against you which is like 30 percent that means that the system was not built for you. It was built for other people. That's two examples. Literally, all you've had to do is walk into the police station. And there's two ways. Like, all of this is so circular and ingrained. And I don't think, I don't think we even realize how much it works against survivors because it's so normalized for us. Exactly. And I think taking my, taking my own experiences and like fears of reporting, like I, for me, I didn't want to report, but and for me to get like care from a hospital, I was required to because I was a minor, and being like a mi- being a minor was just crazy because so two of my big things now that I can like reflect on what actually happened and how like honestly kind of terrible the legal system was. Um, one, so when the police officers first came, it was two men who seemed unhappy to be there, Mm -hmm. who kept taking my phone to see if there was anything on my phone. Like, they, it was just, it was just, like, cold and hard and two men. Like, I'm sorry. After I've been assaulted by a man, I really, really don't want to see another man who looks just like him. I really don't want to do that. So that is not even a fear, but that can go into re-traumatization, which we can talk about. But also one of the fears... And this also, I guess, goes into re-traumatization is like they they will tear you apart in the courtroom. And like for me, like I thought I thought if someone reporting at 17 years old that, you know, I was 17, they would believe me. But then it came to be like, oh, you're 17, you're a kid who's going to believe you. And you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Which like just and that goes into, again, lack of trust in the system. Like what this system was inherently. It was designed to protect the men committing crimes, not the girls reporting the crimes. No, exactly. And, I mean, we talked in our last episode about, like, cross-examination, things like that. But, like Grace just said, the re-traumatization of, like, having to sit there and detail your experience on the stand is 
a huge issue. Right. Like once again, not built to support survivors. Like having to do that. Compounding with being told like, at least in my case, like you're lying. Like yeah. that didn't happen. Like you don't know what you're talking about. You like, cause again, with cross-examination, like you, they will come at every part of you and your character and all of that. And like, how are you supposed to keep, keep it together when you may not even, when your body probably doesn't even let you remember half of what happened. And it's just, there's a lot. And it can be so re-traumatizing. And we've talked a lot about re-traumatization in various podcast episodes um, about, like, the actual impact that that has on your physical, emotional, mental well-being. Yeah. And, like, like why, why? I just, I just don't understand why we have to put someone through the worst thing. Like, we have to have someone relive the worst time in their life for no justice. But why do they have to even relive it at all? I don't know. I think I think there's a lot. And I see the benefits of cross-examining. I really do. But I think in terms of re-traumatization, like, there's a lot of steps that need to be taken in order to protect survivors. Yes, definitely. That this is all, like connected that each of these issues are like just very interconnected yeah I've I've been looking for this quote but I don't think I'm going to be able to find it it's um about Chanel Miller like sitting in the courtroom and she just like has this moment where she like kind of loses it like starts crying like doesn't pull it together and she like tries for a second to get it back together and then she's like actually no like just wait a damn minute and like see what you've done like this is the point that you have pushed me to like this is where I am at this moment is just like crying on the stand because I don't have anything else to give you like this is where you have pushed me and I think that that's like a a pretty good representation that like they're pushing you to that point and oftentimes like if you lose it on the stand then you're blamed for that and looked at as oh well she's too emotional she doesn't actually really know what happened like I just think that there's no winning like yeah yeah I don't know I think we've we've really like talked in circles around all of this because it's such a complex issue but I think the important thing that I want to end the talking about the problems part with is the cycle of like not getting convictions leads to lack of trust in the system, which then leads to underreporting, which means that the cases that are reported, like you're going to get less convictions, you know? So it's just a cycle of it failing in a way that is going to lead to more people being assaulted. Yeah, exactly. So kind of ish on some more positive things. And we're going to be talking about what we think should be changed so you know opinions all the time i mean Uh, all of this has been opinionated to start but yeah this is our specific subjective opinions about what we think and based on what we've kind of seen um and more or less experienced throughout our time working with lux um so well so firstly there are so many there's so 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 many levels and institutions that need to be influenced to start changing how the legal system works for survivors instead of working against them. And like we said, the legal system is not here for survivors. But in order to change that, it's so much bigger than just changing the justice system. It's changing the foundation of everything. 
And so, obviously, there's a lot of changes that need to happen. And we're going to kind of break down some categories and where we think a little bit could go more or less a longer way. So, yeah. The hang tight. F- yeah. Um, okay, the first of those is trauma-informed training for law enforcement professionals. Um, this is a huge thing for survivors who are coming in to report, for police officers who are going to investigate situations of assault. Um, they need to be trained in how to handle these situations. And like we've said, it speaks to the larger issue of how law enforcement handles situations. And there have been some, like, pilot studies done of what it looks like to send like a social worker who's trained rather than a police officer who isn't trained and what that looks like and those changes um but I think like even if we're not going to get to that like whole different way of of responding the bare minimum is like people who are dealing with these situations need to be trained in how to deal with them and as of right now like that is not the case exactly and I think Two, so we're going to go, we're going to dive into the kind of the legal frameworks, but one that kind of jumps off of what Kat just said is really reforming the way that the courtroom functions and the things proceed from a defendant-centric approach to a survivor-centric one. And that's one that allows, or at least works somewhat, to mitigate re-traumatization and to really understand, like, the like. I think the more we understand the psychological impact that survivors actually undergo or experience after they've gone through an assault or an event, that inherently changes so many things. And by being able to reform that, I guess, the courtroom proceedings or change the language in a way that maybe doesn't traumatize survivors and doesn't call into question their character and call them terrible, horrible horrible people and support the defendant like I think there are ways and I can't give you a lot of them but I think that there are and there should be ways instituted to make the courtroom more I guess survivor friendly yeah and then I mean once once you've changed the way that the courtroom looks you're also hoping to change the like way that you're prioritizing the outcome like I think right now defendant centric is a great way to say it that like when that case comes to court you're saying oh but how could it harm him how could it hurt him when what you should be saying is like what can we do what can we be doing to support her as she's gone through this thing and I hear that I'm like using those pronouns like we always say just using the most common example that's not um an exclusive phrase but something that I've heard that I really like is making sure that the survivor's pain is more important than the defendant's potential um to use the Brock Turner case as an example Like, his dad literally said, is the rest of his life less important than the 20 minutes of action that he got? Which is crazy. Like, we need to be prioritizing the survivor and what they've been through rather than, like, the person that the defendant has the potential to turn out to be, you know? Like, the fact that you think he's a great guy doesn't mitigate what he's done and what the survivor's been through. And I think defendant-centric is a really great way to say that that like we have gone into these cases thinking more about the defendant than we do about the survivor and changing all of that in the way that the courtroom is viewed is important yeah no exactly and 
I mean, and there's so much other things that need to change in terms of, like, the legal frameworks, but I think one of the bigger ones is, like, the definition of consent. And I think this has been more or less changing, but not necessarily... We're not necessarily seeing the growth we need to be seeing. Yeah, changing, but not change. Right, exactly. And so... Right now, consent, and I, this was even true in my example, It consent is, okay, well, did you s- physically resist? Did you push them away? Did you kick them? Did you physically resist? No. Okay, well, then you consented. Yeah. And so changing it from ideas of consent like that to being like, okay, did you affirmatively, enthusiastically, soberly consent to yes? Yeah, like instead yes. of did you not say no? Did you say yes and have that be our level of consent? Big, important change. Yeah. Um, Okay, outside of the courtroom, there are a lot of community-based initiatives that are really important, like local support groups, counseling services, societally fostering an environment where survivors are believed. Um, We talk a lot about the stigma around surviving sexual violence, um, but communal support can really work to to break down those like stigmas regarding shame and things like that um so like we keep talking about it comes back to societal measures we can't be doing this stuff in a legal silo it has to happen across all avenues exactly and so another another important um part is advocacy groups and there are advocacy groups that are big small everything in between um and these individuals they they're great we love them they really work to push forward changes when it comes to sexual violence um and kind of how the legal system reacts and adapts and all that fun stuff that we've talked about hold them accountable hold advocacy groups accountable hold representatives hold every hold everybody in the world accountable yeah for how they play a role in this and especially within the community and i think this is a very community centered centered one too like support your advocacy groups like they are there for a reason um and sometimes they can have reach that you don't so it's important to support them and raise them up um because yeah, because basically, I mean, we've talked about things that need to happen on the community level and the legal level, and there's things that need to happen on the societal level, and things have to occur at every single level and kind of bridge and flow together to be successful. So this isn't something that's going to happen overnight or even in the next five years probably. Yeah. But it's something that needs to – that if we work towards now, like I said, the time is going to pass anyways. We might as well be working towards making it better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Okay, now that we've talked about a lot of what we think should be done, we're going to talk a little bit about what some things have been done. Um, There are a few different examples that we've talked about already, such as like extending the statute of limitations, but something else that's really important is confidentiality, um, restrictions on the disclosure of like really personal information about survivors um, that can limit them from receiving like really public scrutiny during legal proceedings. Um, And that speaks to the issue of victim blaming. Um, Because like we've said, like survivors' previous sexual history can often be used against them in court. And then court documents are made public. And then everyone in the world knows that, oh, you've had six sexual partners before this. So really, what's a seventh? You know, like things of that nature 
have started to be changed a little bit to be able to be a little bit more survivor focused um, and help them keep some dignity in in some court cases. And then like we've already mentioned a little bit, having like specialized people who have been trained in these issues to be able to help survivors. Um, moving this from just law enforcement to also be in like court cases with judges and lawyers and bailiffs and people who have expertise in trauma to be able to like support survivors more wholly as they go throughout um, the legal system. And then as we're always saying, um, more support services for survivors, uh, counseling, medical care, legal assistance, um, growing those avenues to be able to support survivors better um, has happened a lot more like with the Me Too movement like we talked about, but should continue to happen, hopefully. All right. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot. Um, I feel like we we talked in circles a little bit, which frankly speaks to the nature of this issue, like how circular it is, which we've said. Um, I feel like the the winding path of the episode kind of pairs with the the subject matter in a way that doesn't always happen for us on these episodes. So hopefully that that was a good thing for y'all. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So like we do every episode, we're going to give you guys some action items. We didn't give you any last episode, so we have a bunch to give you today. Yeah. So our first one is stay informed. Keep yourself knowledgeable about what's going on in the world, what's going on in your community. It's the best way, the best thing that you can do for yourself for free is educate yourself. Yep. Um, yeah, support, like I said, support your local advocacy groups, ad- advocate for policy changes. That, again, goes with stay informed. Know what's happening so that you can research and get a vision of your stance on it and advocate for change, like we the people and all that. Yep. Um, in your daily life, it's important to like be an advocate for things like making sure that you're promoting consent and enthusiastic consent and challenging victim blaming. And like we've talked about before, like situations where you have the opportunity to do something, don't be a bystander, like use your education in a positive way to hopefully support others like in your everyday experiences. Um, outside of that, things that you can do on like a little bit of a bigger scale, obviously, like we've said, support your advocacy groups, but also leverage social media. We just talked about the Me Too movement, how huge that was, and that was on social media. So if you can leverage social media to be a positive advocate for change, um, but in all aspects, try to be a safe space, uh, for other people, for yourself in all aspects of life, um, Per usual, do something kind for someone, something kind for yourself, give yourself grace, all those things that we say every episode. Yeah, so thanks for hanging out with us. Make good choices. Peace and love.